My neighbor cut down a tree this week, and uh, so I thought this was prime opportunity for me to show off my chainsaw skills. Not, not many of you knew I had chainsaw skills, did you? All right. This is, uh, today you are in for a treat. I've got some, I got some mad chainsaw skills here. Okay. So, so what I'm going to do is in a minute I'm going to fire this thing up, and uh, half of it, I'm going to, the, the piece of wood I got is, is too big, so half of it I'm going to cut off, and I'll take it out back, and we'll roast hot dogs afterwards, okay, and, uh, and you can have an Oscar Mayer wiener for lunch, and, uh, and then the other half is where my skills come in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to form a statue here, and uh, it's, it's going to be magnificent. In fact, after we're done, we're going to uh, uh, give honor and reverence to the statue. And uh, <laughs> Eric's got it, all right? <laughs> so if you're not looking at me crazy like Eric, um, then, then you and I got, we both got problems, all right? And not primarily, the, the issue is not primarily that I would start up a chainsaw in church, which by the way, if you haven't figured out yet, I'm not going to, so don't worry. In fact, this is an electric chainsaw if you haven't figured that out already. Uh, uh, the, the problem would be that I would take an old, dirty hunk of wood like this that, uh, and form something that we would give reverence to. Now that is a really ridiculous idea. That we would worship a block of wood that's carved to look like something. And I just want to drive home. I'll, I'll leave this out as a little reminder here. Uh, I'll, uh, I just want to drive home how stupid of an idea that is that anyone would worship an idol like that. And uh, that is just the dumbest idea that you could think of, a block of wood that someone would pray to, that someone would worship to, that someone would look to for guidance. The idea of idolatry is a stupid idea. It's the most ridiculous thing that you can think of. In fact, this illustration I'm using this morning is exa the exact illustration that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 44. And so if you thought, that's a very random real illustration. It comes directly from the text. And so that is what we are going to look at. And, and the point that God makes in this passage is that idol worship is so ridiculous. And I want to just drive that point home to us today. Idol worship is still as ridiculous and stupid as it was 2,700 years ago when the passage that we're going to be looking at was originally written. It's a, it's a silly idea. And you could say, I would never uh, bow down to a block of wood or to a stone carving or anything else, and I hope you wouldn't. But what we see happening all the time is that people give their time, their attention, their focus, they place their hope in things other than God. So in other words, they, they set up things in their lives that we could call idols, uh, as having greater importance uh, than God. 
it would be really helpful for us to begin to think about the application if I could give a definition of idolatry. This is my definition of idol. An idol is a noun, which we learned in school is a person, place, thing, or idea that receives greater focus and hope in our lives than God does. So anything that we would set up in our lives that would, that would receive greater focus or greater hope in our lives than God does, then, then we're entering into idolatry. We're, set, we're, we're, giving our, we're giving what should be given to God to that person, place, thing, or idea. Now the idea of the focus is the present tense. What we're giving our attention, our time, our energy to. The idea of the hope is the future. If I could just have this, if I could just uh, 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 have this relationship or, or experience this change in my life, then I would be satisfied. It is setting up our focus or our hope on anything and giving it greater priority than God himself. That is what an idol is. In Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 20, uh, looks at idolatry, and it points out how silly it is. And that's what I want to drive home this morning in this passage. God wants us to understand. Let's, let's look at Isaiah 40. And uh, we're looking at a pretty large chunk of Scripture today. So uh, I would in- encourage you to open it up on your, in your Bible or on your device or, or whatever, just to keep it open so we can continue to refer back to it. The words will be on the screen as well. This is Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 20. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him, let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and tell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God beside me? No. There is no other rock. I know not one. All make idols are nothing. The things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their shame, to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit nothing? People do that will be put to shame. Let craftsmen, uh, such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool, and he works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He, he, he drinks, or I mean, he gets hungry, and he loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with a compass. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory that they may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars, perhaps took a a cypress or an oak. He let them grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. And here's the illustration I used a moment ago. It is used for fuel. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. 
He kindles a fire and bakes his hot dogs or his bread. Uh, He also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also uh, warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me! You are my God! They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has, understand, no one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I use for fuel. I even baked my bread over its coals and roasted meat and ate it. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Let's go before the Lord one more time and ask him to open up these verses to us. Father God, as we have read your word, we pray that it would now come alive to us, that it would speak to our hearts and to our lives and the things that are going on in our lives right now. God, I recognize that every person here is going through different stuff. They've got their own trials. They've got relationships. They've got their uh, own challenges and their own celebrations. And, uh, God, you know everything going on in their lives, even in the deep recesses of their hearts that they might not have knowledge of. You know it, God. And so we invite you now to come and be our teacher and speak to us what we need for today. Have your way among us today, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first verse, in verse 6 that we read here, It doesn't start off right away by uh, talking about idols. In fact, the first thing that it talks about is who God is. And and that's wise because if we are to recognize a counterfeit God, which is what idols are, a counterfeit God, then we first of all have to be able to recognize the real deal. If you were a cashier in a, in a store and you were taught to recognize a counterfeit $100 bill, they would not uh, have you study all the counterfeit $100 bills that have ever been made. What they would have you do is they'd have you study the real deal. They'd have you uh, memorize it and get it ingrained in your mind exactly what does that $100 bill look like so that if you ever saw any discrepancy in a bill, you would know that that is a counterfeit. And I think that's what uh, God is doing through the prophet Isaiah here. He says, this is who God really is. And in verse 6, he gives four descriptions or titles or descriptions of who God is, the, the real deal. The first thing it says about him is that God is the king. And when we think of a king, a king is one who reigns and rules, right? If God is our king, he reigns and rules in our lives. And we know that he is a good king. And so, he, uh, and so he guides us and directs us in ways that will ultimately lead, to, ultimately lead to meaning and purpose in our lives. That's how God is our 
king. He guides us into the right path. He rules over our lives. The second thing it says of God is that he is a redeemer. Now, as the redeemer, uh, he saves and he satisfies us in our lives. If you've got a bunch of empty bottles and cans at home, you take them into the recycling center, and you redeem them, right? And uh, not only will the recycling center take your old bottles and cans off your hand, they'll give you money in exchange for them. Uh, That's what God does in our lives. He takes our old life, and he forgives our sins, and then in exchange, he gives us a new life that ultimately brings satisfaction into our lives and our hearts. That's what it means that God is our Redeemer. He takes our old life and he gives us a new life. And, uh, and, uh, and, he, and he brings that satisfaction that our hearts are looking for. The third thing that it says of God is that he is the Lord Almighty. Now, if you're using an older translation, it'll say the Lord of hosts, right? And, uh, and that's actually trying to get at uh, the original translation from the Hebrew. Now, in the, in the old King James, when it says hosts, the host is the idea of it's a troop. What this uh, title means for the ancient Israelites, the Lord Almighty, literally means he's the God of armies. As the God of armies, he protects. An army protects the country. And uh, God, as our God of armies, as our Lord Almighty, he protects us from attacks that would come upon us, especially upon our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. God uh, protects us. And then the third thing, or I mean the fourth thing it says about God is that he is the first and the last. In other words, God has no beginning and he has no end. He's everlasting. Now this is the description that uh, God gives of himself from this passage. He says, I am the real deal. And he gives this description with these four uh, characteristics or titles of God. And then the next verse, in verse 7, he says, Who then is like me? So what he's doing is he's inviting us to compare God to the idol, to the counterfeit God. So let's just take a minute and uh, run through our list again. Compared to God as king... Uh, idols cannot reign and rule in our lives. Idols cannot guide us into having the meaning and the purpose in our lives that we are looking for. In fact, idols will keep, get us stuck in a rut where we continue to pursue them, but they bring no real meaning or value, not that our hearts are looking for. Compared to God the Redeemer, God, uh, idols cannot save us, nor can they satisfy us. They cannot satisfy the longings of our heart. Compared to God Almighty, the God of armies, idols cannot protect. In fact, they will actually make us vulnerable to attacks upon our hearts, on our minds, and our spirits. Because uh, they will lead to the frustration and the disappointment and the things in our lives that we would hope that God would protect us from. And then compared to the, uh, God, the, the first and the last, the the beginning and the end, who is everlasting. Idols do not last. In fact, they are fleeting. They are here for a moment, and then we got to keep trying to get more. More money, more whatever. Uh, They are temporary while God is eternal. These idols are in, this comparison sets up, it, it makes it very clear that they're in competition with one another. 
God and idols are rivals. Now, we know what it is to have rivals in sports, right? Uh, and I'm going to just name a couple rivals. Feel free to give a hoop and a hobbler if I mention your team, okay? First of all, in L.A., we know that we have the 5-0 USC Trojans. We got a few hoops and hollers on the front row. Uh, and we have the 5-0 UCLA Bruins. Oh, boy. Okay. So far, so good. We're pretty even. When we, we have the 110-win Dodgers. Okay, there we go. That's what we're looking for. And we have, what is, I, I wrote it down, the, ouch, 79-win San Francisco Giants. Oh, we did have one uh, cheer. I, th I expected all boos on that. And then we have the, and it, and it gets worse here for us. I didn't even write it down because it's pointless. Then you have the Los Angeles Angels. Okay, we have some, uh, some cheers. Who are rivals with, uh, the Angels are rivals with, I don't know who the Angels are. I, I think you have to win to have a rival. So... <laughs> little angel burn there, sorry. And so what would, if we consider God, who would be the rivals to God today? Well, the first one that comes to mind, maybe an obvious one, is money. And all the stuff that money can provide. Talk about a definition of idol where, where it is, uh, where something becomes the focus and the hope of our lives. How many people is money and the stuff that money can provide the focus and hope of their lives. We oftentimes say, uh, follow the money, and we just have to uh, uh, show me the money, and we just have to follow the money to uh, find out oftentimes what is a rival to God in our lives. A second one, it might not be so obvious, but I see it all the time, is the idol of image. Because in our culture, we are so obsessed with what people think of us. It's the image of not only good looks, but it's the image of reputation. It's the image of, how, of our status in, in the community or at our workplace or even what our friends think of us. We give so much of our time, our attention, our focus, even place our hopes on the image and uh, we become overly concerned with what others think of us. A third one might be success. Because uh, so, uh, the, the first place I would point to with success is how much times do we give so much of our attention to our career success? And it becomes the focus and the hope of our lives. But it's not, just a, it's not just our job or our career that we oftentimes pursue with such vigor. Sometimes it is the success of our families. You know, I see it especially with kids. In a sense, parents are trying to set up idols in their kids' lives for them. And they place so much focus and hope on the kids' success on the field or on the court or in the classroom. It can become an idol. And the last one I would say that I, I think is a modern-day rival to God today is that of happiness. 
It's so fundamental in our culture today that it's written into our Constitution, the pursuit of happiness. But many are pursuing happiness with the greatest fervor in their life. It is their focus and hope. They're living for the weekends. It's the fun, entertainment. Their friends be, uh, begin to take greater importance uh, than God in their lives. These are the idols that seem prevalent in our culture. But think of something in your own life. Because really anything can rise up to be an idol in our lives. Anything, a person, place, thing, or idea that receives greater focus and hope in our lives than God can be an idol. Now, before I go any farther, I just want to point out something that's significant to our study here this morning. And that is all these things in and of themselves are good things. Are we challenging you to say you should not desire to be successful in your career? No. Are we challenging you to say you should not want financial security? No. Are we saying you can't have a good reputation among your friends or in your community? No. Are, are we uh, saying that you can't pursue happiness in life? No, of course not. The common mistake that people make is that they take good things and they make them ultimate things. That is the problem that we experience when we talk about the temptation of idolatry. Now, the reason I think that they are good things is deep down inside, they actually may be aiming at something that God has placed in our lives, a hope or a desire that is placed within us because we are created in the image of God. In fact, I think so many of the, uh, uh, the, the reasons that people pursue idols is because we long for things like significance and meaning and identity and freedom and justice. These are deep desires within our hearts that idols seem to uh, point to, but they are cheap substitutes, and only God can provide that deep meaning in our lives. Idols can't provide those deep longings. Only God can. Speaking of uh, deep longings of our hearts, there's a story I want to remind us of from the life of Jesus. And, uh, and, and the thing that I want to point out here, first of all, is that the man we call the rich young ruler— came to Jesus with this, with a deep desire in his heart. He came to Jesus and he says, Lord, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Something that surely God had planted in him. And Jesus asked the man, the rich young ruler, he says, uh, have you kept the commandments? And it's interesting that he goes on to list uh, several of the Ten Commandments. He says, I've done all of these things. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've honored my uh, parents, my father and my mother. I've, I've not lied. I've not stolen. And uh, Jesus says, good, but one thing you yet lack. And now he doesn't point this out, but what I think Jesus is doing here in this passage with the rich young ruler is he's pointing the man to the first of the commandments. This guy listed the five, five of the Ten Commandments, but he forgot about the first one, which, or at least he didn't recognize it in his life, which is the one that deals with idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. And do you remember what Jesus says to the man? He says, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come and follow me. You see, for this man, the issue that he had 
the idol that he had was his wealth. And the passage comes to a conclusion in Matthew 19, 22, when it says, the young man heard, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You see what's going on here? The, the problem wasn't that the guy was rich or that he was young or that he was a ruler. The problem was that his wealth had become the greater focus and hope in his life than God was. He couldn't sacrifice it to the Lord. Now, when we seek to put idols to death in our lives, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is, call, is going to call you to completely eliminate that from your life. What it does mean is that if God did call you to eliminate it, that you would, because it is submitted to Him. You see, what we're talking about here in place of sacrificing to an idol, we are willing to sacrifice to God. We're willing to lay it down and say, God, you have full reign over everything in our lives. And so in other words, these things that rise up in our lives, what we're doing is we're saying, God, they're yours. We talked about last week how we are created to, uh, to live for God's glory. What we're saying, God, God, use this in my life for your glory. For this man, it was his wealth. And now I just want to begin to drive it home and to give us application. What would it be for you? Now, all of us, I'll just say something before we're done today. I want something to come to mind. Maybe it comes to mind right away. But the reason I know that every one of us struggles with this is because it's the dominant theme of Scripture. It's all over every page of the Bible. The, uh, the greatest temptation of our lives, the reason that it's the first of the Ten Commandments, is because it is idolatry. Sanctification is basically the process of putting idols to death in our lives. So what is the person, place, thing, or idea in your life that could be potentially a rival to God, that could, be, that could take on greater focus or hope in your heart or in your mind or in your life than God has in your heart, mind, or life. And if that is, once that is in your mind, here is the point of today's message. In fact, it's the title of today's message. There is nothing special about your idol. As great as it might seem, God wants us to understand that there is nothing special about your idol. In fact, that's the point of verses 9 through 11 here. Uh, it refers to idols as nothing, as worthless, as shameful. To the person who worships an idol, it is said that he is ignorant or that she is blind. To uh, the idea of idolatry, there is nothing special about your idol. And then uh, God says, with that understanding, he just wants us to stop and think about it for a moment. Verse 19, God says, stop and think. Let's use some logic here. Verse 19, no one stops to think. No one has under, knowledge or understanding to say. Half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a de de detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? In a sense, God is saying, if you worship a block of wood, you're a blockhead. And 
in a sense, what he is, okay, I'm, thank you. I got a mocking ha-ha from the front row. Talk to that woman afterwards. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. God challenges us to think rationally about these things. Your beauty will fade. Your possessions you can't take with you. One day you will either retire, get fired, or die on the job. Your, your relationships, as great as they are, they are not perfect, and they will one day end. A little logic helps us to see that there is nothing special about our idols, at least not in comparison with who God is. In fact, all these idols that we can uh, create in our own lives and in our own hearts are lies because they can't deliver on what they promise. These things that are uh, deep down in our hearts, the significance, the meaning, the identity, the freedom and the justice, they can't provide. They're liars. Verse 20 says, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? To which the obvious answer is, Yes, it is. And we all hate liars. You, know, you cannot build your life on a lie or you will be unstable. That's the whole point of this sermon series. We want to find our footing. And to build our lives on anything other than God leads to instability. You see, we want the truth. We're like Tom Cruise and a few good men. I want the truth. Which Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. Right? I wish I could do a good Jack Nicholson uh, in. Uh, impression, but you get the idea. And the thing is, you can't handle the truth. What is the truth? The truth is that God is the only one who deserves the focus and hope of our lives. That God is the only one that can truly satisfy. So here's what you should do. You should build your life on the truth, the God of truth. This sermon is not necessarily a a call to intentionally become poor by abandoning all our money. And it's not necessarily a call to become bad at your job. In fact, I know it's not a call to become bad at your job by abandoning the desire to be successful in your career. And it's not a call to become a recluse by abandoning all relationships. No, this is a call to surrender and to say, God, it's all yours. Use them for your glory. And when we do it opens up opportunities. Because then we have opportunities to use these things, these rivals, to put them to work for God's glory. We can use our relationships, our money, our career, uh, our desires, all of these things. We can submit them to the glory of God and, and, and simply be stewards over them because God has given them to us. It gives us tremendous freedom in our lives. When we trust in him, it gives us the ability, the ability to have a different focus and hope. This week, and I'm sure some of you can relate to this, I opened up my computer and I got on the website that gives me a number for our investment account. We opened an investment account a, couple, a few years ago uh, with the hopes that it would grow some and we'd be able to do some work on the house. And it is lately especially in a, a depressing activity every time we open up, every time I open up that webpage because the number is smaller than it was the last time I checked it. And, uh, and I did that this week. And because this sermon was fresh on my mind, 
rather than getting really frustrated or really disappointed, though it is disappointing, I just reminded myself that this investment account, nor anything else in my life, is not my focus and my hope. This investment account belongs to the Lord. It's surrendered to him. And I have to trust in his wisdom. He is the king. And he reigns and rules over my life. You see, this gives us tremendous freedom when we put our idols to death. It gives us the freedom to live for the glory of God. It gives us the freedom to find our identity as a child of God and not what we can do or not what we can accomplish. And so the call this morning is to surrender all of these things to the Lord and to receive his freedom in return. In a sense, what we ought to have is a bonfire to burn our idols, but a bonfire is not really what's needed. We're not going to have a bonfire after the church, so if you're hungry for hot dogs, sorry to disappoint you. What we, we don't need a bonfire as much as we need a communion table. Because it is the communion table that reminds us to go to the foot of the cross where everything can be placed upon Jesus and can be surrendered to him, that we can be forgiven, and that we can receive his life in exchange for ours. That's God the Redeemer, who takes our lives, it takes our old life, our sins, and he forgives them, and he gives us a new life. And so this communion table is really what we need more than anything else. We need to gather here, and we need to submit all things to the Lord in prayer. So as we gather around the communion table today, I'm going to invite you to do two things. Is One, I'm going to invite you to sacrifice your idols to the Lord. Whatever that person, place, thing, or idea that's come into your mind, I want you just to take a few minutes in the quietness of this sanctuary. Rod's going to play us a hymn in a moment. And, uh, and as we have these quiet moments, it's your opportunity to repent and to turn it over to the Lord. And then, I, the second thing I want us to do is go all the way back to verse 6, and I want us to focus on the real deal. I want us to give opportunity to praise God that He is our King, and that he can uh, reign on rule over our lives to give us meaning and purpose and freedom in our lives. I want us to remember that God is the Redeemer. It is Jesus up on the cross, offering his life as a sacrifice for ours, that he saves and satisfies us. I want us to praise God for being the Lord Almighty, the God of armies, who protects our hearts, minds, and lives. And I want us to praise God for being the first and the last who gives us eternal life. With those things in our, uh, in our minds as we gather around the communion table, let's prepare our, our, ourselves for communion. If anyone does not have the communion elements, please raise your hand and uh, keep it raised. The ushers will come and bring you a communion element. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Before I pray, I'll uh, just with every head bow and eyes and all our eyes closed.
Um, I will just say that this is a, a table for those that are believers in Jesus Christ. This act of taking communion is not to try to earn our way to God or to earn our salvation. It is an act of obedience and gratitude for what God has done for us. But if you are here this morning and you haven't received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I would invite you just to, just to let this time pass or to even take, a, take a, a leap of faith and to pray to God. But if you're here this morning and you haven't made that decision and you want to right now, oh man, what a perfect time to ask Jesus to come into your life to forgive your sins and to be your Savior and Lord. God, as we gather around the communion table now, we pray that you would come and minister to us. Just as Jesus commanded us to, we do this in remembrance of you and the fact that you have sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And so I thank you for the cracker and the juice and what they represent. That's what we're really thankful for. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and the salvation that we can have through him. And so God, just as we pray, may you bring things to mind that we need to lay at the foot of the cross and may you fill our hearts with gratitude and praise as we worship you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. invite you now to take out the cracker first. God's word says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. And now with the juice. Sorry, I'm struggling with mine today. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. God's word goes on to say, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, again, we thank you for the communion and what it represents, the sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. God, thank you for the new life, the salvation and the satisfaction that we have in you. Thank you that you are our King, our Redeemer, our Lord Almighty, the first and the last. And we pray that we would live for you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.